Hi, I'm Janet Deneith, founder and director of the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival. You are about to hear one of our highlight conversations recorded live for our 2022 festival, which explored the role of the written word in upholding humanity's values and freedoms through our festival theme, Mamayu Hayuning Bawana, Uniting Humanity. So please settle in and let the magic of our 19th festival continue. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our session this morning entitled Intellectual Journeys with Bridget Delaney and Eric Weiner. Um, have any of you read either Reasons Not to Worry or The Socrates Express? Put up your hand if anyone. A few. Good, good. It always helps to know. Um, now, I'm going to make a confession. When I was first asked whether I wanted to moderate this session, I thought, hmm, sounds a bit boring. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, philosophy, I'm not sure it's really my thing. Uh, but I said, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll give it a try. And I'm really pleased I stuck with it, because it, it as you will hear, and I'm, I'm sure that you will want to rush off and buy both books at the end of this session, you will hear, as um, one of Eric's uh, reviewers said, Everything that could easily come up as pretentious and boring turned out to be very exciting and entertaining. And that was, that was the way I found it, and I hope you will too. So um, I'd like to start off by um, asking the two of you to talk a little bit about how the book came into being, what, what motivated you to, to write it, um, and if you want to also say a few words about yourself before you... <coughs> launch yeah. into that. Okay. Um, well, uh, the impetus for this book was actually this thing, uh, my iPhone. Um, and it's a wonderful thing. Through this device, I have access to pretty much all of human knowledge from uh, the ancient Egyptians up to uh, yesterday. And so we're flooded with data and with information and even with knowledge. But I realized that what I was lacking was wisdom. And as smart as my iPhone is, uh, it can't tell me what the right thing to do is in a given situation or how I should live my life. And so I was looking for sources of this wisdom. And religion's one source. Uh, social sciences is another. Lots of studies out there. But it seemed to me there was a third source that was overlooked uh, by people like Joe, who were put off by philosophy. <laughs> um, but I decided to tackle it, <clears throat> keeping in mind that the word, English word philosophy comes from the ancient Greek philosophia, which means literally lover of wisdom. So it was uh, my hunger, my thirst for wisdom that propelled me to write this book. And just briefly about myself, I am essentially a philosophical traveler. Um, I like to marry idea and place in my books uh, with a few dollops of humor along the way. Great. Bridget? Um, so until a couple of weeks ago, I had a weekly column in The Guardian. Um, and as part of that column, I would do experiments each week, um, or some weeks, uh, including waking up every day at 4 a.m., uh, doing the Mark Wahlberg, uh, you know, workouts, um, only eating foods that are green. Um, 
And one week, um, I decided to live as a, as a Stoic for a week. Sussex University had a Stoicism course. So I did that course and I was kind of, didn't take it very seriously, wrote a jokey article and then got quite a lot of blowback from the quite sizable Stoicism community that exists mainly online saying, this philosophy is great, you know, you should actually take it seriously. And so the following year, I got a group of friends together um, in Sydney uh, and there were really different people. One was training to be a priest. There was a, a journalist from The Australian, an activist from GetUp. Um, and a group of us decided to do Stoic Week and have a WhatsApp chat, WhatsApp chat group around Stoicism. Is that better? And talk about how what was going on in our lives and if Stoicism could be applied to make life easier or make us suffer less. And in the course of that week, it was amazing to see how, how kind of useful Stoicism was in everyday life. And um, I was having a conversation with a friend one night about it and there was a publisher nearby, eavesdropping, and I got a phone call the next day saying, you should write a book about Stoicism. And that was in 2018. Mm. And so I spent the next few years studying it, like in my own kind of just in a journalist way, not in a formal way. And um, a friend and I would meet um, very regularly and go for long walks on the cliffs of um, Bondi, Bronte and Tamarama and we'd talk about what was going on in our lives at that point in time and how we would apply Stoicism. So it's very much a model that was used in ancient times where um, the great Stoic philosopher Seneca had a friendship with um, a pupil, Lucilius, and they would exchange letters um, and apply Stoicism in the way that a doctor would apply a prescription. And then the pandemic happened and suddenly, you know, the control tests and all these things that are central to Stoicism took on this, you know, extremely kind of urgent um, application. And um, I wrote the book over the course of the pandemic and I used a lot of examples around things like police orders, border closures, um, sickness and dying, not being able to see loved ones, isolation. Um, I applied Stoicism to all those really kind of heavy present problems and found that Stoicism actually really helped me get through the last few years and continues to help me get through things that I face today. Okay. Well, I think a little bit later on you're going to go into what Stoicism actually is in a bit more detail. Mm -hmm. But um, one thing that struck me is that you both have the gift of making very complicated esoteric concepts uh, very simple and understandable. Um, how did you go about doing that, Eric? Um, well, thank you. I am a fan of uh, what Einstein said about this. He said, if you can't explain something simply, you don't understand it well enough. And I think there's great truth in that. So I really, I try, I see myself as, a, as an interpreter of, uh, to be honest, academic gobbledygook um, or dense philosophical treatises. I read a lot of these dense books so that you don't have to. And what I try to do is to get to the essence of the idea and not get hung up on the jargon. I'm really allergic to jargon. I think jargon is the enemy of good writing because jargon is really designed to, to um, put up a wall between you and your re reader and your audience. And why the heck would you want to do that mm. if you're a writer? So, um, so I, I did a lot of reading, as I'm sure Bridget did, 
Um, and not all of it appears on the page directly, but hopefully it's, you know, it, it's like when the Japanese swords makers, they make the swords, they're always removing the impurities so the sword is, is really dense and you're just getting like pure sword and that's, that's what I tried to do in my writing. Right. Um, I think one of the things you do very well as well, I guess, to help make things more accessible is how you use humor. Yes, I feel like I should say something funny now, but I can't <laughs> think of anything. Um, and uh, humor's tricky. Um, I think um, humor can be used two ways. It can be used to conceal a truth or to reveal it. So maybe sometimes, you know, people ask you a question that gets a little too close to the bone, something personal, and you make a joke. That's to conceal the truth. But if you look at something like satire, or hopefully the kind of humor I use, it's to reveal a truth which you couldn't reveal by being serious. And uh, to me, there's no topic that you can't use humor in, um, in including philosophy. So uh, I have a little fun with the philosophers, some of whom were quite full of themselves, and also with myself. I think being self-deprecating on the page is a way to invite the reader into your book, into your world. Mm. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I mean, I think it's... Um the, the original Stoics, so I, I uh, kind of draw mostly from the Roman period, um, and there's three in particular that I look at, Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, and Epictetus. And they were hilarious. Like, they were so funny. Um, and particularly, they had a whole kind of um, body of work to, on dealing with insults and dealing with your enemies. And often it was using humour or with a quip to disarm people because um, they just wanted to be tranquil and chilled out. They didn't want to get angry, um, and so humor is a great, a great way of, I guess, cooling down the anger, using your mind to be quick-witted rather than furious. Um, so humor is, I think, a great tool in terms of managing emotion, but it's also about making people comfortable. And, um, you know, there's some funny, like when I was doing all my stoicism experiments, you know, I, I would go too far and think about people, you know, regularly dying and I'd get really upset and as I was walking along the cliffs, I'd be sort of so in my head that I'd almost walk off and actually die while thinking about people dying. And, and so it was all kind of great material for the, the, the journey that we all have through life, which is, as Eric said in his book, trying to gain wisdom and often the, uh, you know, the journey to gaining wisdom is full of, you know, Amusing moments. It's not all. It's not all serious stuff. Yeah. Uh, I noticed that you both use the the how-to model. Um, how did how did that come about? Yeah. So my my book is arranged in fourteen chapters, um, three sections: or morning, noon, and dusk. The idea being there some how-to questions that are more relevant when we're younger, some when we're in the prime of our life, whatever that means, and someone were older, whatever that means. And, um, and so I wanted each chapter to be a very, and I think Bridget's on the same page here, a very basic how-to question. Like, you know, uh, not how to reconcile, reconcile Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative with Nietzsche's eternal recurrence. That's not the how-to question I wanted. It's how to get out of bed in the morning, like mm -hmm. Marcus Aurelius, who had mm -hmm. trouble getting out of bed. How to wonder like Socrates, how to see like Henry David Thoreau, and then, you know, tougher questions like uh, how to grow old like Simone de Beauvoir, how to die like Montaigne. And so these are like basic questions that 
all of us wrestle with every day and where I think science doesn't have great answers, but they're, they're relatable, they're down to earth, and that, that's why I took this approach. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, took it, I took the approach for similar reasons, which is like the Stoics um, from ancient Greece, when they would meet, they'd meet under the Stoa, which is um, Greek for the painted porch, and that's how the Stoics got their name. So it was a philosophy that people gathered, probably in a space similar to where we are today, and they talked, and they tried to... Um, you know, work out the big things like how to how to live well, how to live an ethical life, um, how to cope with sudden disaster, um, how to cope with like a, a natural dislike you might have, you know, to an in-law or someone in your circle. And so those gathering places for the philosophers and their students in ancient Greece was a place of practical wisdom. And I think what's lacking now, and I really found this when I did my WhatsApp group, is that People are post-religious, many people are post-religious, so they don't have that weekly worship, they don't have the community of a church or a mosque or a temple, um, but they still have the same questions that we've all had, which is, how do I live a good life? How do I live a meaningful life? How do I cope with, with hardship? How do I, you know, get sick with, you know, fortitude? And how do I die with grace? Um, and those questions are eternal, and I think philosophy is a great way of, of solving them, or not solving them, but dealing with them, but outside the framework of a, you know, a the theological position. If I could just follow sure. up, I totally agree with Bridget that we, we are suffering from a giant wisdom vacuum right now, where many people are, as you say, post-religious. Religion, for various reasons, doesn't work for them. Um, so we have science, which was very, is very good at telling you uh, the what uh, and the why to some extent, but not how you should live. And um, the thing about, say, the ancient Greeks or Romans is a lot of what they came up with is, is obsolete. We really don't want to use ancient Greek pharmacology. Um, that's, a, that's a bad idea. And they were not really big on technology, the Greeks at least. I'm not sure about the Romans. They didn't really have their version of a Steve Jobs. But wisdom, um, as Bridget said, is, is portable. It travels through time and space, and it's just as relevant today as it was to the, the Stoics sitting under the painted porch in 300 BC. So um, some things you know, get better with age. Um, you know, philosophy and wine, there's good philosophy and good wine, and bad philosophy and bad wine, but in general, the older the better. Mm. You mentioned technology, but I want to take another angle on that. Um, you, you said in your book that technology seduces us into thinking philosophy no longer matters. Can you comment on that? Right. Picking up on what I just said, it's the idea that, oh, we are so much more advanced than the ancient Greeks or Romans. We've got iPhones, you know, we've got electric cars, um, we've got dongles. I still don't know what a dongle is. And <laughs> I just know I need to have one. And, and you obviously don't have one yet. Yeah, I don't have a dongle. And, and so we think we have all this stuff, so why do we need these Greeks who didn't have, and Romans didn't have indoor plumbing? Um, their, their broadband speed was very slow, and so why do we need them? But it's confusing. It's what, what philosophers call a, a category mistake. We're confusing one category, technological advancement, for another, wisdom. And they're, 
just because you're advancing in one doesn't mean you're advancing in the other, and I think we confuse them and make that mistake. Mm. Bridget, I'm going to ask you now to tell us a little bit more about uh, Stoicism. Okay, so Stoicism started, um, you know, around 300, 350 BC in uh, Athens, and it was when a lot of philosophical schools were flourishing, including the Cynics, the Skeptics, the Epicureans, and the Stoics kind of sat between the Cynics and the Epicureans. Um, so they were they were very engaged in community and community life, but they didn't want to be separate from the world. And they also they also realized that you know if you get if you have nice things you should enjoy them, unlike the Cynics who were you know fond of giving things up. So they were quite practical in how they lived. You know they said if if you've got a comfortable bed, good food. Um, can enjoy good wine, then live it up. But they also realised that life can throw a curveball at you any time. Those things can be taken away, as we've all experienced, you know, in the last few years. Life can change in an instant. So they were all about like trying not to suffer too much when things get taken from you. So, um, for example, they have this uh, they have this principle called preferred indifference, and they say that you should be indifferent to your health money and your reputation because all of those three things are out of your complete control. But you, it's, it's natural to prefer to have a healthy body, a good reputation and money in the bank. Um, but they didn't want to suffer twice if, if those things were taken from them or if those things somehow vanished. So it, say for example someone swindles you out of money, there's the first suffering which is the loss of the money and then there's the second suffering which is the pain, resentment, anger that you feel following your loss. So a lot of Stoic philosophy was around limiting your suffering to the original problem and not, you know, suffering excessively because they believe we have one life, um, it's short, we need to enjoy ourselves and um, try and be unperturbed with problems. So um, that's the core of it, and this thing called the control test, which is working out what you can and can't control in life. And they believed you could only control three broad things. Um, your character, your actions and reactions, and how you treat others. And everything else is outside your complete control. So that was their focus, and um, that philosophy ended up moving to Rome and um, was very popular in Rome, particularly amongst of lawmakers, politicians, people like Seneca, who was a playwright and an advisor to Nero, um, although he says, don't hold that against me, um, uh, and um, Epictetus, who was, um, whose teachings in a book called The Anchoridian form a lot of sort of what we use as modern Stoics. So um, Stoicism kind of lost, lost popularity after the rise of Christianity, and um, I think we're going to talk a bit later about why it's back. Uh, but that's kind of stoicism in a nutshell. Mm. Can you give us an example of, of how you have applied it to your life? So last night um, I got in really late from, um, I flew Canberra, Sydney, Sydney, Denpasar, the plane was late. Um, I couldn't find transport. It was around 1am. And I thought, okay, I might not make it to this session or I might really struggle to get here. And I looked at, well, what's in my control here? I can, um, 
you know, I can try and get uh, another car, I can try and get a hotel, but ultimately things like a driver turning up or a flight being on time or even if a flight leaves is beyond my control. I can't control the weather, I can't control if a, a flight's been cancelled and I'm sure all of us have experienced, particularly in the last year, transport problems, particularly flying and how much rage there is following, you know, a delayed flight, a cancelled flight, being bumped onto another, you know, another flight that means you miss your session. And stoicism is all about going, well, I can't control that. That's out of my control. I can just try and be tranquil. I can try and react in a positive way um, and then have a contingency, contingency plan. Um, but I, I won't let it affect me more than it has to. So that's a recent example. Yes, thanks. Um, in your book, you talk quite a lot about the pernicious effects of social media, uh, unless it's carefully managed. Again, can you talk us through how you, how you see that and how you might apply the principles of stoicism to that? Definitely. I mean, like Eric, I kind of share a, I share a, a fascination with the intersection of how we live in a very technological world, how we're very online, but the intersection of ancient philosophy and how ancient philosophy can help us cope with this second digital life that we're often living in. Um, so the Stoics didn't have social media, but I just was completely shocked time and time again how they seemed to predict it. You know, they predicted it by um, having a whole kind of philosophy around dealing with insults, dealing with angry people, dealing with mobs. Um, so I'm on Twitter a lot and, you know, have had lots of negative experiences on Twitter, but I think, well, I can only react, you know, I can just be myself and react in a pleasant way, so I never engage in um, arguments or anger. I just don't get angry online. Um, Unless it's you know this kind of unless it's making a righteous point, which is allowed in stoicism, but I don't let. Um, <laughs> Wait a second, how often does that happen? <laughs> so it's um that the Stoics say you you can have principles, but don't get angry about them. So you make a kind of righteous point, which is you make your point clearly, but if someone then argues with you, you your tranquility is not disturbed. So, um, you know, I think. In a lot of online, in, a, in the online space, there's so much anger and escalation. And Marx Aurelius had this great line of, "You always have the opinion. You always have the option of not having an opinion," which I think is amazing. You know, and often our opinions are the things that inflame us and cause us to lose our cool. So it's about going, "Well, do I need to, you know, get into this debate with a stranger?" Secondly, do I even need to have an opinion in the first place? Do I know anything about this? Maybe I don't know anything and I can just withdraw. Um, so there's a lot of helpful tips in Stoicism for dealing with social media. Right, any comment on that, Eric? Yeah, the, the idea of saying you don't know, I think is central to philosophy, going back to Socrates himself, who, you know, the oracle at Delphi declared that Socrates was the wisest man in all of Athens. He's like, well, I'm just a stonemason's son. I'm not that educated. How can I be the wisest man? And he went around asking people basically a lot of annoying questions. He'd go up to a general and say, what is courage? Go up to a poet and say, what is beauty? And he quickly realized they had no idea what they were talking about. So Socrates concluded, at least I know that I don't know. 
And it's that thoroughly conscious ignorance that I think lies at the heart of all philosophy, be it Stoicism or, or whatever it is. This idea that it's okay to say, I don't know, and that all true knowledge begins with that statement, I don't know. And these days, for a variety of reasons, we're very reticent to utter those words, I don't know. Certainly politicians mm. don't mm. like to say, I don't know, when asked the question. But why not? Why can't that be great? They said, I don't know. Um, so mm. there we mm. go. Mm. I know my experience of living in Indonesia. I think when you've lived here a couple of years, you feel that you know quite a lot about Indonesia. And the longer you're here, mm. the less you know, the less certainty there is. And when you come to terms with that, you, you deal with life a lot better. Yeah, good mm. point. Mm. Um, Eric, you, you looked at a, a grand total of 14 mm. philosophers in your book. Why those 14? And the million-dollar question, do you have a favorite? Mm. Uh, the first question, um, I had to narrow it down from hundreds and hundreds of philosophers. I chose the ones who spoke to me, who I felt had a, a message that translated into a how-to question um, that were as much heart as head. Um, you know, I didn't choose ones who were just so in their head that they weren't relatable. Um, and I also wanted some geographic diversity. Um, I didn't want just um, dead white men. So I've got um, dead Asians and dead women in my book. The only criteria criterion is that they have to be dead. Um, okay. So Why? Uh, Why do they have to be dead? Because then you have, um, first of all, they can't write nasty things on Twitter <laughs> about you, so you uh -huh. insulate yourself against that. Um, also, I think wisdom takes a time for us, time for us to have some distance from it, to recognize, like, oh, that's wise. Like, who are the wise people today? We're, it's hard to tell. Maybe we don't have any, but we need the distance that some time allows. So that was the main reason. And um, as far as favorites, um, so it's like asking me my favorite child. Um, who's your favorite child? That's a tough one. Um, I'll give you three. I'll give you Gandhi, who I do think was a philosopher, but a philosopher of action. I call him the action figure of philosophy um, because he did stuff. He didn't just think about it. Um, I would say um, Montaigne, because he was sort of the most like me. He was moderately successful in life and decided to walk away from it all, go up into his tower overlooking his vineyard, and surround himself with books and think and write about it. Um, I don't have a vineyard or a tower, but I've got a spare room in my house in suburban Washington, D.C., and I've got lots of books. And he, his, his motto was, um, what do I know? Sort of going back to Socrates, and I, I sort of found that relatable. Um, so those two are probably my favorites, with an honorable mention to Schopenhauer, the philosopher of pessimism, who was really grumpy, uh, but had this soft spot for music and for Buddhism, actually. He was one of the first people to read, uh, in Hinduism, to read uh, the Upanishads in like triple translation from Sanskrit to Latin to German. Yeah, it was heavily translated, but he, he had this interest in uh, Eastern mysticism in the 19th century. Mm. Um, you say that uh, we probably are more receptive to certain types of wisdom at certain points in our life, what we're going through. 
which which wisdom is the most palatable to you right now? Oh boy, um, boy, I want to say how to grow old, but that means I'm growing old, and that can't be possible. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to say it. Um, it's uh, the chapter is how to grow old like Simone de Beauvoir, mm -hmm. and she was actually she wrote. Um, the Second Sex, which she's very well known for, but she also wrote a big 600-page tome called The Coming of Age, um, which is about growing old, and it's mostly pretty negative, but if you look at it through a certain prism, and one of the points in my book is we choose how we look at anything through a certain prism, she actually is pretty positive, especially in the way she did grow old. She became more active as she got older, and she had more acceptance, which I think is a very stoic uh, characteristic. She came to accept her ailments and not to fight them. Um, and she found it very liberty, liberating to be growing old because you just don't give a flying frog what anyone thinks about you. Um, and she, she noted that a lot of creators and geniuses, some of them have done their best work as they get older when they're like, what the heck? I'm not around much longer. I might as well try this. Um, so I find those lessons, it's how to grow old, but it's really how to live. Mm -hmm. you know. And if you can apply those lessons uh, now, before you're old, more power to you. I, I totally agree. Like um, I found when I was studying Stoicism that a lot of the lessons on death and grief, it's important to learn them before you go through it. Because if you're trying to learn them on the hop, right. when you're in the in the midst of grief, it's way too much. So the Stoics had a very specific, they had specific teachings on grief. Um, and when friends of mine who had lost parents or siblings um, would ask me how they'd cope with their grief, I really hesitated to share Stoicism with them because they were in it. And um, Stoicism as applied to grief, can sound really, really brutal. So best learn it when you're, you know, yeah. in a good spot. I think it was Seneca who has this idea of premeditated disaster where you're supposed to yeah. imagine, like, the wor when you're worried about something, imagine the worst possible yeah. outcome and keep going. Like, okay, yeah. so I lose my job, so I can't pay the rent, so and yeah. keep going, you know, and just do a thought experiment. Epictetus had this um, quite famous, very harrowing line in, in his... Enchiridion, which is when you kiss your child goodnight, when you put them to bed, imagine that they won't wake up in the morning. Um, and yeah, but that was meditating on loss um, and you do it every day. And the point behind that is that when the child does wake up, you're filled with appreciation and joy at having this person in your life. And if they don't wake up, um, you've given yourself a tiny inoculation against the loss. Mm. Mm. So very hard to talk to people about that when grief's right. involved, you know, like it's just overwhelming them um, because it can sound, yeah, very heartless. Yeah, yeah. Now you also uh, wrote about death and pointed out that by applying the principles of stoicism, death is out of our control, but fear of death and our reaction to it is very much in our control. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of the Stoics spent their whole lives learning how to die, you know, learning how... Um, to when the moment came to face it like they face any other experience, which is looking reality in the face. I mean, they weren't much... They didn't believe in hope. Um, Seneca said, if you cease to hope, you'll cease to fear. 
So if they got diagnosed with something terrible, they wouldn't hope for a cure. They would say, well, I'm more, as likely to die from this as anyone else, so why am I you know, more special than someone else? And so when death came, there was a sense of being in reality with that process, of realising it's a natural part of life, that everyone dies, that we have an end point, um, and that when the time comes, it's not spent in struggle against it, but moving with it. Um, and Seneca said we die every day. Every day we are closer to that last day. And the last day is really just the culmination of all our last experiences. Um, so I really, I really liked that because it's very unusual in our society to be so, um, I guess, clear about death. You know, it's very, it's very hidden. Do you want to say any more about that? Um, I was thinking of how these philosophers overlap. So Epicurus, who in some ways was a competitor, I yeah, guess you would say. They were like, you know... He was the Samson to the, um, you know, the other. Yeah, and in a lot of ways he was antithetical to the Stoics, but in some ways they were in agreement. So Epicurus said that, you know, well, you're worried that when you die you won't exist, but you didn't exist before you were born, and I don't see you <laughs> fretting about that. And I read that, and I'm like, yeah, that's a good point, you know? <laughs> um, so a lot of the philosophy on death is basically don't worry about it, you don't know? It. <laughs> I mean, you can't do anything about it. Yeah. Like, they've been trying. Elon Musk is onto it, but, like, so far, no dice. So, yeah. yeah. Mm. Now, when you were talking about which of the philosophies you, you sort of identified most with at the moment, I, I sort of shared your um, sympathy with um, Simone de Beauvoir's reflections on growing old, and I loved the quote from um, Sartre, that old age is unrealizable. Uh, old age is a state of being which we inhabit, but never fully internalize. Only others do. We may look old, act old, and by any objective measure, be old, but we never feel old. <laughs> I thought that was great. <laughs> it's true, and, and Sartre and, and Beauvoir bo bo both basically said that uh, old age is not biological. There's nothing biological about it. It's entirely a social construct. It's, it's society just saying, you're young and you're old. And any correlation with actual senescence, I think is the word, the deterioration of the body, is just random, basically. I think also you can, I mean, I feel like I've aged like 20 years this week. I've just started a new job. Um, and so you can sort of have these eras in a week where you age because of an experience you've been through, but it doesn't actually reflect in, you know, your body or how people perceive you. So I think aging happens, you know, in, in a variety of ways. Mm. Now, I, I get the feeling that there are going to be quite a lot of questions. Um, but before we open it up to questions, uh, I'd like to ask you both to leave our audience with a pearl of wisdom. Mm. Eric. Okay. Um, change your perspective a little bit, not a lot. Henry David Thoreau was a great eye for nature and for looking at things. And he famously lived on Walden Pond, and he would look at the pond from different angles, at sunrise, at sunset, times of day, put his head this way, that way, and sometimes he would even put his head between his legs upside down and look at the pond inverted, which, by the way, I tried 
the blood rushed to my head, I nearly passed out. <laughs> so I wasn't so good at it, but he saw great beauty and different shades of beauty by changing his perspective. And that is what, you know, when, it, when you read a good novel and you put it down, you see the world a bit differently for at least a while after reading it. Same thing with philosophy. It's like putting on a new pair of glasses, and it's the same world, but you're seeing it just slightly differently. And we have many opportunities every day to change our perspective 10, 15 degrees off-center, and things look entirely different. Good. Thank you. Um, the quote I ended my book with is one that is, I don't know, it just hits me, um, and it's Marcus Aurelius, and it says, um, although you break your heart, men will go on as before. And I'm just like, wow. You know, which is like, you will have these things that happen in your life that cause you immense pain or immense joy or whatever, your heart can be broken, but people will go on as before. You know, empires rise and fall, life goes on. And so you have to keep going on as well. You have to keep going, putting one foot in front of the other. You know, as um, Eric writes in his book, getting out of bed each day, which Marcus had trouble with. Um, but yeah, you just keep going. Yeah. So. Great, thank you. Right, let's open it up to questions and see where that takes us. Okay. The Do we have a, a microphone? I think it's, yes, it's there we room. go. Thank you. I'm Jonathan from Surabaya. My question is, do you think that feeling and emotion are important? Because uh, I was practicing stoicism in a way, and then uh, people said that you become cold, heartless, and because like this, of course we, we try, we try to uh, not suffer too much when we lose something, and then That's a great the, the, the best the best way to do that is like to for me is is to distance from my feeling, to yeah. distance from my emotion, so uh, yeah, uh, and not expect too much. I mean, my background is Christian. I was I was uh, taught to, to 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 hope to the help from above and everything, but when I practice Stoicism, I know that. The expectation is the one that make you fail, that make you sad. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. It's a great question and mm -hmm. one that I actually grapple with literally every day I was writing this book. Um, and it's woven through my book about how do you handle emotion, particularly desire um, is a big one. Um, how do you handle it with the stoic principles of things aren't within your control? Um, so I, I think the stoics, they didn't understand things like the unconscious, hormones, um, you know, ad advertising that's coming at us all the time and that we are governed to an extent by our emotions. Um, but they did understand that our emotions could swamp us and take us to a place where we were disturbed and we got caught up in a story. So I think how I've approached stoicism and emotion is to realise that I'm going to have emotions that are, you know, unpredictable, that... Um, are biological, that are, you know, mysterious, but to be aware of them, to have a conscious, you know, conscious kind of understanding of when I, say for example, um, I go for a job, I really want it and I miss out and then I'm devastated. I think that's a natural feeling, but stoicism would help me realise when to cut that feeling off. So experience it and then go, okay, I can't do anything about it, I'm going to move on. So... There's an excellent book by um, a Princeton philosopher called Martha Nussbaum called The Therapy of Desire, which talks 
specifically about stoicism and emotion. And it's brilliant in terms of integrating what we know now about science and biology and um, you know, psychology with ancient Stoic principles. So I, th I think you can have a bet both ways. Um, and you don't have to be pure Stoic. Um, because Seneca said, you know, the, this philosophy can be remade by people that come after us. You know, it's, it's not completely doctrinal that we can't add to it with what we've learned through scientific discovery or a better understanding of the world. So I would say keep going on your Stoic journey, but don't push your emotions aside. Just have a conscious experience of them, and then when they no longer serve you, move on to the next thing. Right. Do you want to comment on that? Um, I'm just reminded of what Carl Jung, his definition of neuroses was inauthentic suffering. And I think that's what the Stoics are advising against. They're not saying don't suffer, don't feel emotion, but feel it authentically, and then it will pass through you relatively quickly. It's when we get stuck uh, in grief or guilt or these other really negative emotions that we're just suffering for suffering's sake. It's inauthentic suffering. And my understanding of Stoicism is they saw the necessity of suffering, but not to excess. And so much of, of our suffering is inauthentic and really unnecessary. Great. Any other questions? At the back. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how our society is structured for uh, us sort of moving through levels of spiritual growth. If you know, if you have a look at uh, an ancient philosophy, so like Vedic philosophy, it has four very distinct phases where you're first a child and a student, you can develop that sense of ego, and then you're a householder and you have a job and children and limited time for say, practice or self-inquiry. But as you age, there's very marked points where you lead towards complete freedom, where you can completely sort of go for it in terms of um, your own spiritual development. But our society isn't very well structured around these sorts of ideas. Could these be helpful? Yeah. I mean, um, now the fourth stage is golf, you know. <laughs> Everyone retires and plays golf. But I think you're speaking of like the sannyasi who at the end of their life they would become forest monks, they would, this is an old Indian tradition um, where you reach a certain stage where your children are grown and your business is taken care of and you sell it off and you go off into the forest and you live simply. Um, and I just think in general that, I don't know how you feel about this Bridget, that we don't have any spiritual or philosophical structure, that any wisdom we get is just you know, about the stages or about anything really is random and, you know, maybe you'll see something in the New Age section of the bookstore, maybe a friend will say something, uh, maybe you'll talk to someone who's into Stoicism, but it's... It's, it's not it, integrated. It's not integrated into our lives. Mm. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, one of the things about the Vader and one of the things about, say, re religious traditions is that it integrates wisdom in all the different life stages and it integrates ritual and we're so much poorer for stripping ritual and spiritual integration from our lives and I mean purists would wince but I, I find that there's a lot of spirituality in stoicism you know Marcus Aurelius said um, dwell on the beauty of the stars watch them and run with them you know this sort of sense of worshipping um, the natural world and the world around us um, and if you do that you're less likely to have you know to 
um, stand by while the environment's destroyed or be estranged or alienated from the natural world. So they, um, the Stoics definitely integrated a kind of um, environmental perspective, a spiritual perspective, a sense of um, wanting to uh, or needing to retreat from time to time to, to read and to learn and then to teach, to actually, you know, school people in the philosophy. But we don't have any of that now except for in our books, which you can buy over at the uh, <laughs> Greek bookstore. Well, the, the Stoics teach you how to slip a plug in like that? <laughs> actually, one thing the Stoics, is, the Stoics would be appalled because um, Epictetus said, embody your philosophy don't talk about it like it's really embarrassing to talk about being a stoic um very uncool so they would have not approved of of this <laughs> event i didn't know well, they're, they're dead they're dead <laughs> <laughs> any other questions one down the back there Where? yes okay one over there I'm just wondering if any of your philosophers would have anything to say to our global situation at the moment where we seem to be governed by a lot of people with sociopathic tendencies, um, both at the sort of international level but also at corporate level. It seems that an undue number of people with those tendencies rise to the top. Anything that we can do about that with your philosophies? <laughs> I mean, Seneca was great on that because he worked for Nero who eventually um, asked Seneca to kill himself, which Seneca <laughs> did by drinking hemlock, which didn't quite work, then trying to slit his wrists, but he didn't bleed out, and then asphyxiating himself in a bath, a hot bath. So they knew a lot about working for dangerous leaders. Um, I guess what they would say is we have a, um, we have a relationship to our communities, and we have a duty to, um, they use the kind of like nature as their guiding force. So it's, a, it's in our nature to be good. It's in our nature to live in community. And for some people, it's in their nature to lead. So if you, have, if you hit those three markers, um, you, you, get, you should get good government. Um, but look, people keep voting for the most entertaining politician or the politician that gives the most kind of handouts. So, it's very hard to be in lockstep with, with those wow. sort of stoic ideals. Yeah, well, Plato famously called for the philosopher king, uh, and he was against democracy. Um, and if you look at what's happening in the world today, often in democracies that become undemocratic, um, you see that maybe Plato was right. He was worried about the, the mob, he was worried about the masses making the wrong decision, but I can only think of one example throughout history of a true philosopher king, and that, of course, is Marcus Aurelius. Um, I think part of the problem, if it is a problem, is philosophers tend to be outsiders. Uh, they're not the captain of the ship. They're the one rocking the boat. Um, even, uh, they're even booted out of academia, you know, and become feral philosophers like Nietzsche or Schopenhauer, freelance, essentially. So there's a tension between you know, wanting to govern and what it takes to govern and wanting to be a philosopher and question assumptions and make people think. Maybe when you're governing, you don't want people to think too much and there's a natural tension there. Mm. Nice. Any other questions? Hmm, I thought we would be I thought bombarded. this was a philosophical group. Oh, there yes. Yes. 
thank you for sharing. I uh, I think I heard you you mentioned about the meditation on loss, right? I think uh, I remember the quote of uh, Nikola Tesla when he mentioned that he we we live in term of uh, energy and vibration, right? Mm-hmm. So isn't it like uh, somehow like we we are taught to do like a visualization, right, on mm. bringing the universe or the mm. the uh, the time or the uh, space that we want, right, through a visualization? So mm. when you're doing meditation on loss, isn't mm. it like you're bringing Oh yeah, you're, mani- you're manifesting the loss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had to fight that. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a hippie. I had to fight that manifestation of loss. Like, oh, I'm imagining my family dying. Maybe they will die. Um, and they will die. Uh, but I found that imagining the worst actually didn't manifest it. Um, it just gave me a dose of reality. Um, in a way, it's, I don't know if people know the Rhonda Byrne book, The Secret, where if you think about getting a Ferrari, it'll suddenly appear. Um, well, the Stoics say, think about having a Ferrari and someone keys it or steals it or, um, you know, you're, you're then maimed in a Ferrari accident. And uh, <laughs> I think the, the Stoic approach, whilst it is less pleasant, um, should a bad thing happen in the Ferrari, you're at least a bit more... Um, relaxed about it. Um, but in terms of the first part of your comment around the energy thing, I mean, that the Stoics thought that we, you know, we are pure energy and we, when we die, we're returned to the earth. We are, you know, um, we are food for, you know, animals. We nourish the soil. We're part of a whole life cycle. So um, that notion of returning and us being energy that's returned into the world when we go, I think it's a really, you know, it's shared amongst a number of spiritual and philosophic traditions. Um, and part of this book I wrote while I was in Mongolia, hanging out with nomads, and they had a very similar thing of they would leave their dead on a mountain and crows would eat the bodies and they saw that as the highest praise for the life cycle that we're all in, that you're giving back, your energy is returning to the source from which it came. Also kind of a Buddhist idea. Yeah. I mean, I noticed lots of similarities between mm. Stoicism and Buddhism. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's the vibe. Yes. <laughs> Don't get technical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you want to add anything else to manifesting? Yeah, no. Um, I mean, so much of philosophy is about um, seeing what is there in front of you. I have uh, a chapter called uh, How to Appreciate the Small Things, like say Shonigan. Shonigan was an 11th century writer and courtesan in Kyoto, uh, wrote a book called The Pillow Book, and she just observes beauty in the smallest detail. It's her diary, basically. And as opposed to you know manifesting a Ferrari, appreciate the the beauty of your Hyundai, you know, and how your 20-year-old Hyundai or, and how it gets you where you're going. And it's, it's, again, changing your perspective and seeing the beauty that's in front of you as opposed to yearning for more things that you need to manifest that are then apparently going to get keyed by angry Stoics. <laughs> or not angry Stoics. Stoics don't get angry. <laughs> Over the back. I think we've probably got time for one final question. Okay. Uh, Just continuing on with the theme of manifestation and the book The Secret, um, I see that as being 
really stealing Jesus's work and bringing it down to a very low level because Jesus applied those ideas of prayer to, um, you know, things that uplift humanity. But what we see with the commodification of our society is that they're used for consumption. So could you talk on how we take these beautiful, pure spiritual ideas and then there's a marketing, they're repackaged or how they're used in modern day? I mean, I don't know how you feel about this, but everything is derivative. Um, You know, uh, Christianity has been called Platonism for the masses, right? And so after this golden age that we both write about, Stoics, the Epicurus, uh, the Cynics, all during the Hellenistic period in Greece, um, Christianity comes along and it basically pushes everyone to the margins. And, and Stoicism and Epicurism and other philosophies go into retreat, and yet the ideas lived on in Christianity. So in a way, it, Christianity borrowed from the ancient Greeks, and now self-help authors today borrow from Christianity. So there is no pure philosophy any more than there's a pure religion. That's my view. It's, it's all, they're all borrowing from each other. And I don't know, if, if the secret works for you, then I would say, great. I'm not going to say because it's a book that sold more than mine or Bridget's that you shouldn't <laughs> read it. Um, you should question it, though. But I, I don't, I don't want to get into the situation of saying, well, that's not like a serious book, so you shouldn't take it seriously. Like, try it. If it works... Great. If it doesn't, maybe you should move on and read our books. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Anything to add, Bridget? Or should we leave it on that plug <laughs> that, for you that to market, rush? That marketing note? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> rush off to the bookshop, which is, in case you don't know, just, just up there, um, and uh, buy their wonderful books. I would highly recommend both of them as, as very, very entertaining and enlightening reads. So thank you both very much for a very nice session. And thank you to our audience. So that kind of wraps up the session for today. But if you're still interested to know more about these three speakers, all three of them will will still be around. I think uh, Jill has a session later on at Alam at 2 (laughs) o'clock with... Um, Power structures in storytelling. I do. And Eric also has a session later on at 3.15 here in Indus with travel, writing, making sense of the world. While Bridget has like two sessions for today and tomorrow. Today it'll be at 12.45 at Alang. Uh, And then you can also check our uh, program schedule on our website as well as our social media. Thank you very much, everyone. Uh, And do use the hashtag WRF22 when you post your, all your uh, pictures on social media. Enjoy the festival. Thank you.